Well, interestingly, the term, the phrase manufacturing consent was not ours. We borrowed it from the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, Walter Lippmann. He said that's a new art in democracy to manufacture consent so that the uh, ignorant and meddlesome outsiders, his phrase, the population, will be passive and acquiescent and will accept the rule of the responsible men, people like us. And in fact, the myth is that the media are independent, uh, adversarial, uh, courageous, uh, struggling against power. And uh, it's actually true of some, they're the very fine, often very fine reporters, correspondents. In fact, the media does an honest, courageous job, but within a framework that determines what to discuss, what not to discuss, and what we try to demonstrate in the book is that uh, if you simply look at the institutional structure of the media uh, within a state capitalist society like ours, uh, they're performing it pretty much the way you'd expect. There can be no other opening for this show than to hear from the great Noam Chomsky, the most consistent practical humanist in the Western world. On this, I offer no equivocation. There's a good chance that unfuckers have heard the phrase manufacturing consent, the title of Chomsky's landmark book, based upon the phrase first uttered by Walter Lippmann, as you heard in the clip. But there's never a bad time to revisit the work of Dear Uncle Gnome. We're going to once again leverage prior episodes as building blocks to a larger narrative about how our so-called democracy operates. We're not completely leaving Uncle Fucknugget in our rearview mirror, as there's a Chicago school connection in this episode as well. And while we're on the subject, thank you. Thank you to the hundreds of listeners that reached out after our Fuck Milton Friedman episode last week to affirm our standing in the potosphere. I am thrilled and eminently soul-satisfied that you enjoyed the show, and we'll share some of your remarkable feedback and insights during show notes. If you're a new unfucker, welcome to the party. Here's what you need to know. We dislike Milton Friedman. The essays our shows are framed around are at unftr.substack.com, and we'll never charge for them. This is how unfuckers become subfuckers. And we encourage participation, so find us on social, email us at unftrpod at gmail.com, or visit our site at unftr.com. Our show is supported in one of three ways, each of which is available for your review on the website. One, buy the team coffee one time when the spirit moves you. Two, buy us coffee on a monthly basis by hitting the subscribe feature on the buy us coffee thingamajig. Or three, just buy some fucking coffee. We sell our own brand of unfucking coffee, fair trade, organic, Arabica bean coffee roasted by Native Americans on a reservation in New York. And if you support us, you know what that makes you? You're a smart motherfucker, that's right. Would you stop shilling and just get on with it? That's Manny. He's a dick, <laughs> but he's my dick. Okay, that did not come out right. No, it did not. Onward. Today's story will center on the most egregious example of manufactured consent that is News Corp, the organization controlled by today's protagonist and subject of our next hashtag, FRM. Fuck Rupert Murdoch. The fact that we let this monster from down under invade our thought space and contaminate the discourse in this nation is a crime. But this is a hackneyed story on its own. It's understood at this point by at least half of the country that his information outlets hastened the race to the bottom in media, which was already in a state of decline. His companies have made us dumber, angrier, and more susceptible to conspiracies. Of this, there can be no doubt. In this spirit, and in true unfucking style, we'll also reveal how he was able to accomplish this in a short period of time. 
To do this, we'll travel through a brief history of American media, discuss the legislation at the center of the disaster that is our media, and place our polarized news landscape in its proper context. The pivot center point of our feature is 1996. Toward the end of the episode, by the way, we're introducing two new ongoing themes to the show. One is called The Tyson Principle, named for one of our very first listeners. And the other is something that I call Pito Tuiu. Along the way, we'll borrow some thoughts from a personal hero, Matt Taibbi, and the estimable Chris Hedges. All the while, Bill Clinton, Ronald Coase, William Buckley Gore Vidal, Joseph Pulitzer, and William Randolph Hearst will all make appearances in our story as we examine manufacturing dissent. How we let a fucking Aussie destroy the United States. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs he started a podcast Another basic white guy who he started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Before we begin today's episode, and in light of all of your positive feedback for our Fuck Milton Friedman episode, it is my honor to begin today by hoisting the FMF hashtag to the rafters in celebration. We're officially retiring this hashtag and declaring June 10th, the day our episode dropped on podcast platforms around the world, Fuck Milton Friedman Day. Every year on the anniversary of this grand accomplishment, we shall fly our fuck flag high toward the heavens where we will offer a middle finger salute to the diminutive ass nugget who created the perverted doctrine of the free market ideology that purposefully and without reservation ass fucked generations of working class Americans and citizens of poor nations that we subsequently plundered for cheap labor and natural resources. We celebrate and honor your legacy, sir, with the FMF hashtag and in our hearts. And so on, fuckers, one final time this year, until we meet again, join me in remembering the man, the myth, the legendary asshole Uncle Fartnoggin as we say in unison, fuck Milton Friedman. Do not despair on fuckers and subfuckers. We have thousands of miles, hundreds of episodes, and scores of hashtags left to unfuck. But there will always be a special place in our hearts, and in hell, for our original FMF hashtag. Now it's tempting in a show like this to start by throwing a bunch of chum into the water and playing sensational clips of Fox News anchors spewing venomous lies and tearing down the country, but that's just window dressing for the larger issue that we're going to tackle today. Oh no, please, allow me. We need to kill them. We need to kill them. The radical Muslim terrorists hell-bent on killing us. As for forcing children to wear masks outside, that should be illegal. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Don't forget, it is open season on straight white men in this country, and y'all aren't allowed to celebrate your straightness. It's 2019. Don't you know that's been off limits for at least the last 10 years? So keep the political commentary to yourself. Or as someone once said, shut up and dribble. Okay, that was worth it. We live in an age of both manufactured consent in the truest meaning as prescribed by Dear Uncle Gnome. But we also live in an age of manufactured dissent. 
a close relative of consent that relies on centralized media. Again, I know unfuckers are far more likely to be familiar with Chomsky's theory of consent, but it's worth a quick refresher because the concept was groundbreaking when it was first released. The end result is essentially classic propaganda, information backed by an agenda deliberately intended to persuade the public towards a particular stance. Chomsky's theory, which he co-authored with Edward Herman, is concerned with the how, how the mechanisms of propaganda in modern Western society attain these ends. The first is probably most relevant to our story today, and that's consolidation of media ownership that is driven by a profit motive. Matt Taibbi's recent book, Hate Inc., explores this phenomenon in the Trump years and describes just how lucrative this brief but caustic era was on both sides of the political aisle. The second aspect of the theory is that the news, the primary product of media, is more expensive than what consumers are willing to pay. Therefore, the gap must be filled in advertising. The news audience is the same as the advertiser audience, and therefore, there's an inherent friction in what's delivered, meaning advertisers will perhaps have a say in what is sold via the news channels if it contradicts with their messages or what is withheld. The next two conditions to their theory involve the players themselves, the media elite. In this, they're not necessarily condemning the media for elitism in their perspective, rather pointing out that the relationship between power structures and media is just that, a relationship. Power holds out access as a primary engagement weapon, which fosters a cozy atmosphere at the top. It's what drives real reporters nuts about events like the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You want this story? Do me a favor. Squash this. Cover that. Look here. Don't look there. Truly independent media that criticizes the halls of power, as we'll explore later, is extremely rare. The other side of this is when there's a story or narrative that's meaningful to power, it will overwhelm journalists with extreme access and storylines that push an agenda. Now, all you need to know about this one is the war in Iraq. Lastly, the linchpin to manufacturing consent is to determine a common foe, the boogeyman. In the 40s, it was Nazis, which in fairness was kind of okay. In the 50s and 60s, it was communists and socialists. In the 70s, it was the radical left and Iran. In the 80s, it was communism again. The 90s were weird because power was getting its way, every way possible, but the establishment was freaking out because they were caught off guard by the political rise of Bill Clinton, who despite being the bagman for corporate elites, Wall Street and law enforcement, was painted as a new kind of corrupt politician with loose morals who threatened to turn back decades of conservative social values. The most infamous document of this era, I suppose, is the manifesto created by neoliberals like Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Wolfowitz, who were unexpectedly cast to the sidelines when H.W. Bush lost to Clinton. It's called the Project for a New American Century. It's a critical source document among conspiracy theorists who believe that 9-11 was an inside job because it posits a theory that the United States must proactively plunder foreign nations for natural resources if we're to maintain our dominance in the 21st century. What lit up conspiracy theories ever since is that it suggests that this will be difficult absent a single, almost horrifying and catalyzing event that unites all Americans under the banner of nationalism and clears the way for us to intervene in nations abroad. Of course, then came 9-11, and it seemed less like a policy document and more like a self-fulfilling prophecy. All of the players that authored PNAC wound up in power. But within the PNAC document, you can see that the work of the Chicago School and neoliberalism was on full display. It's really quite fascinating. So as much as the 90s were essentially aligned in terms of American interests, the 2000s would find Islam squarely in our sights. Now, having said that, the 90s really were pivotal, 
with respect to Chomsky's first line of thinking, and that is media consolidation. So let's go there next. Nothing happens overnight. The ability to coordinate, consolidate, and disseminate any message to a mass audience begins with the legal authority to do so. As much as some would like to believe that we live in a free communications market, this couldn't be further from the truth. Apart from the protection of free speech and eroding right as it is, much of what we know to be the media is licensed by the government. Radio stations, broadcast television stations, cable system operators, and yes, every website exists on bandwidth either created by or licensed by the government. In this way, local print media is still the most potentially free and unfettered form of expression that still exists, though it's nearly dead in all the ways that matter. Those of us that exist in the real free speech universe, such as podcasting or the growing popularity of forums like Substack, are still rounding errors compared to the giants of broadcast media, print, and digital. And given the recent trend of intervention by private companies such as Facebook and Twitter to condemn free speech, as awful as that speech might be, it calls into question the future of any such platform to fully maintain independence. That's probably a different episode, though. Everything changed in American media in 1996. The internet as we know it today was still in its infancy. Google was two years away from being born. But change was underway with deregulation once again playing an integral role in the shift. This law also recognizes that with freedom comes responsibility. Any truly competitive market requires rules. This bill protects consumers against monopolies. It guarantees the diversity of voices our democracy depends upon. In a healthy show of bipartisanship, Congress passed the Telecommunications Act of 1996 to, in its own words, promote competition and reduce regulation in order to secure lower prices and higher quality services for American telecommunications consumers and encourage the rapid deployment of new telecommunications technologies. Well, it sort of did this, but it did a lot more. A quick callback to last week in our Chicago School episode. You might remember a Brit named Ronald Coase, who argued to his colleagues that if it's between government regulations and no regulations, the free market is preferable. This was the theory that Milton Friedman lectured in defense of for two straight hours, ultimately changing the mind of all 21 economists in attendance. Anyway, Coase originally built what we know today as the Coase theorem around broadcast spectrum auctions and his concept that we should cease to license them through regulated awards and allow them to be auctioned off to the highest bidder with little to no restrictions on the use of them. So right before Telecom 96 and beginning in 1994, that's actually the new way that spectrum was sold by the government, netting it a really pretty penny, by the way. It was codified and extrapolated in the Telecom 96 Act and it explains why only the wealthy conglomerates control the digital spectrum today. This wasn't a coincidence on fuckers. Coase's theorem was literally the basis of this decision. Yet another example of how insidious the work done at the Chicago school has been. Uh, listen, I know we just retired as Jersey, but I think this calls for a proper uh, fuck Milton Friedman. Here, here, Manny. Now, the law also lifted ownership restrictions on broadcast companies. Previously, limits were placed on the number of radio stations and television broadcast stations a company or an individual could own. There were also cross-platform ownership restrictions within individual markets and a cap on the number of stations a company could own in a given market. 
These laws existed since 1934, and they contributed to the diversity of news, information, and even music and entertainment that was offered to the public. The flood of subsequent mergers and acquisitions was staggering. Within a few years of the Telecommunications 96 Act, mega communications companies had emerged and the grand homogenization of news, music, and entertainment was underway. Across the digital spectrum, two other seminal changes occurred in October of 1996. America Online offered monthly dial-up accounts, thus bringing the public one step closer to entering the arcane world of the internet, a magical place that most people had heard of, but relatively few understood. It was also the debut of this. Good morning. Welcome to Fox News Channel. Fox News Channel. The race was on. Telecom 96 allowed public companies to swallow broadcast companies whole. AOL threw open the informational floodgates to the public, and Fox News began its steady ascent to the top of the cable news ratings and the descent to the bottom of intellectual discourse. Today, most of the media we come in contact with, radio, television, daily newspapers, are controlled by surprisingly few multi-billion dollar corporations. The brutal irony, lost on no one, is that the law was purportedly an anti-monopoly piece of legislation. Hardy fucking har. Not only has this phenomenon crushed diversity of opinion and creativity, it's created an enormous price disparity between broadcast assets and financial performance. Massive public companies with broad portfolios have inflated the value of broadcast licenses and established an artificial barrier to entry to any individual who might want to compete in this space. See, the role of the fourth estate is to hold government, noblemen, in their words, which is basically corporate oligarchs today, and the public in check. The term was first uttered by Edmund Burke, but it echoed simultaneously across the pond by the founding fathers of our nation. It's a pillar of our democracy as a whole, but locally as well. In fact, most citizens interact with the government at very local and mundane levels. As Americans, our fascination might be with national affairs that are of little import to our daily lives, but our daily relationship with government is, in reality, far more tangible. The conditions of the roads, or the ease or difficulty of obtaining a construction permit, or the days our garbage is taken from the curb. The reduction in local newsrooms mean that these agencies are left with little to no oversight, save for the random Concerned Citizen Facebook group organized by your stupid neighbor as moderator. And with less local bullshit to focus on, it leaves consumers more tethered to things that we didn't used to care about that much in the past. Oh shit, a liquor store was robbed 2,000 miles from my house and is being shown over and over and over again on the nightly news. I better arm myself like fucking John Wick. Hey, R15. 11.5 inch, compensated with an iron bonded bolt carrier, Trigicon AccuPoint with 1.6 magnification. And while local communities suffer from a lack of insightful coverage, the national media is plagued with erroneous information passed off as gospel. Fact-checking websites have sprung up everywhere and gained a tremendous following during the arduous periods of lies known as elections. Yet nowadays, even their credibility is being called into question as the ranks of fact-checkers are rife with partisan employees and former political campaign staffers. This deeply rooted misinformation, the real sticky stuff, is pernicious and persistent by design. An internet whisper campaign is deafening. What's missing from the equation isn't the information or our access to it. We all have access to the same information and the ability to parse through it thoughtfully. But we lead busy lives, and we rely on the simplest, fastest forms of news we can get our hands on. We live in an on-demand world, allowing us access to information specific to our interests, further compounding the issue. 
Now, media companies know this, and they've begun to target specific programming based upon our demonstrated digital interests. Taibi has a great line in Hate Inc. where he says, After a lifetime of following the news, most customers will lose, usually forever, the ability to understand what they're getting into. There are no warning labels on the news, and if there were, here's what they might say. The news is a consumer product. Advertisers know this as well, and now have the ability to establish a digital profile on any person who lives even partially in the digital world, thus allowing them to narrowly target messages to the consumer. We know this now about social media and that they're designed to double down on a steady diet of anything we signal as interesting. Watch a clip of Donald Trump saying something racist? Here's 10 more. Like a video questioning the outcome of the election? Here's 50 more. Did you like watching Biden trip literally three times in a row going up a set of stairs? I did too. You get the picture. It's Orwellian, and it's here. To hope the media self-corrects and finds the courage to eschew bullshit theories of balance in the name of objectivity is fucking delusional. It's part of the business model to offer, quote, equal time to liars and cheats. And why not? He said, she said is a fantastic business model. Arguments, no matter how absurd or pedantic, are entertaining as fuck. The media has been encouraging and quite frankly banking on the politics of division since the Buckley Vidal special in 1968, now the subject of a successful documentary, The Best of Enemies. I believe there's a great deal of truth to the theory that this event forever changed the media landscape. Though like many things, what followed may have been inevitable. Watching their exchanges today will make you mourn our intellectual roots because their discussions, while mean-spirited, maintained an air of intellectualism. It's actually amazing how many of these now infamous debates had Buckley on one side. His impact on the media is not to be minimized, but that too is for another day. What was debated and who may or may not have come out on top matters less than the ultimate takeaway from the debate. Television consumers loved it. It was a hit. And I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm you don't concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Uh, Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names. I'll you in your goddamn face and let's, you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's go. Let the author Myron Breckenridge go back to his pornography and stop making any illusions of Nazi to somebody who was infantry in the last war. You were not in the infantry, as a matter of fact, you didn't fight in the military. You were not. Now you're distorting your own military record. As a fun aside, very few people got under Buckley's skin as Vidal. It's barely audible here, but there's a moment when Buckley utters, Now listen, you queer, stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Crypto-Nazi queer might as well be the slogan for all media since 1968. Another quick aside, you know who appeared on Buckley's show only once? Noam Chomsky. Why only once? Because Noam Chomsky ate him for fucking lunch, and it's one of my favorite things ever. Anywho, Hannity and Combs, Crossfire, multiple Brady Bunch screen talking heads screaming over one another. 24-7, we're subjected to these so-called experts barfing all over us and poisoning our minds. It's what makes Jon Stewart's admonition of Paul Begala and Fucker Carlson even more poignant today. So I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say, wait, wait, I just, let me, here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, 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 stop hurting America. Okay, now. Let me, and and let come me, work for us because we, as the people. How do you pay? The people, not, not well. Better than CNN, I'm sure. But you can sleep at night. Now, 
What's missing from the public is common sense. The ability to spot an agenda and know when information doesn't look, sound, or feel right. Unfortunately, courage in mass media no longer exists, and when it's detected, it's silenced. Moreover, the public has been numbed and overstimulated by a tidal wave of social media, data, and commentary that passes for news. The media know this. Here's Taibbi talking about the difference between a Fox viewer and an MSNBC viewer. The main difference between Fox and MSNBC is their audiences are choosing different personal mythologies. People who watch Fox tend to be older, white, and scared. They're tuning in to be told they're the last holdouts in a disintegrating empire, Romans besieged by vandals. Fox is basically a never-ending slasher flick for the greatest generation. People who watch MSNBC, meanwhile, are tuning in to receive mega doses of the world's thinnest compliment, i.e. that they're morally superior to Donald Trump. As far as the real news is concerned, information regarding corporate and governmental atrocities is available to anyone interested enough to seek it out. But the glut of reality shows, emphasis on consumerism, the drive to sell product over the need to push substance has numbed the public senses and quelled our appetite for harsh news. Likewise, it stripped the mainstream media of the financial incentive to feed it to us. All of this is worsened by the institutional inequality in our economic circumstances that makes escapism way more favorable than reality. Here's Chris Hedges from one of my favorite books of his called The Death of the Liberal Class. The media are as plagued by the same mediocrity, corporatism, and careerism as the academy, the unions, the arts, the Democratic Party, and religious institutions. The media, like the academy, hold up the false ideals of impartiality and objectivity to mask their complicity with power. They posit the absurd idea that knowledge and understanding are attainable exclusively through vision, that we should all be mere spectators of life. This pernicious reduction of the public to the role of spectators denies the media and the public they serve a political role. Get me Roger Ailes on the phone. Roger's dead, sir. Crippy. All right, then send in my son, James. James quit the company and donated money to Biden, sir. Jesus Christ. Uh, Give me that son of a bitch who said there was a real right here. Sorry, sir, you, you, you kind of trailed off there. Trump. Get me Trump. Hello, Poopert. Can't talk long. I'm hosting dinner theater tonight at Mar-a-Lago. The 5 p.m. sitting and 7. Hamburgers for everyone. Gotta go. Shit, I'm so lonely. How I wish I had my own little friend who loved me for me. I can help with that, sir. Hannity Cricket, where did you come from? Your imagination, Ruppetto. We all did. And we all love you, sir. Holy shit. Megan Kelly, what are you doing here? Hannity Cricket and I are here to grant your wish. Respect? Admiration? Something like a snow sled from my youth that represents the emptiness inside me that haunts me forever and prevents me from having true happiness? Mm, no, sir. We were kind of going in the Pinocchio fairy tale direction, not the Citizen Kane motif. Right. Little puppet made of pine, wake. The gift of life is thine. Fairy Megan? Hannity Cricket? What's going on? Well, Tucker... You were once a real boy, and now you're a real puppet. It's Pinocchio in reverse. You see, there are still those who believe that racism exists. Inequality is bad, 
and climate change is real. It's up to you to convince them that these things aren't real and that all of their problems are because we allowed black people to vote. You mean, if I convince them of these things, I can remain a real puppet? That seems hard. I know, Tucker, but Hannity Cricket and I believe in you. So does Ruppetto. You've got a hell of a head start, kid. You're already a real asshole. The public battle between William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer at the turn of the 20th century had disastrous consequences. The drive to publish sensational news items led to the coining of the phrase, yellow journalism. The phrase actually refers to a battle over the rights of a color comic strip called Hogan's Alley, which featured a child in a yellow shirt and was coveted by both publishers. Their inane dispute over the comic led both publishers to create versions of it, and the expression yellow journalism stuck. But their public fight would have far more dire consequences to the nation when the two men stoked the flames of war with Spain, both erroneously reporting an incident off the coast of Cuba in an effort to sell newspapers. Aside from plunging America into war under false pretenses, the Cuban affair gave an ambitious young politician and soldier named Theodore Roosevelt a public platform to reshape his image as a heroic rough rider, named after the battalion he led in a march up San Juan Hill. Roosevelt would not only become president, he would become the bane of Joseph Pulitzer's existence. The publishing wars between newspaper tycoons would ebb and flow throughout the 20th century, and media in general was largely controlled by the wealthy. Evidence that news organizations were largely controlled by a few men with selfish political interests and close government ties is overwhelming. Information about the treatment of Jews in Nazi Germany, even during the height of mass genocide, was scant. Even the New York Times printed precious few stories about what they knew was occurring. Anti-communist witch hunts during the 50s and 60s were largely accepted, even encouraged on the opinion pages of the nation's largest periodicals. And in the first few years of the war in Vietnam, there was little resistance from the establishment media. It wasn't until the 1970s that national news and public interest began to merge. The New York Times and Washington Post began publishing the Pentagon Papers, leaked by whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg in 1971. A year later, the Watergate scandal erupted on the pages of the Post and entered into the public's consciousness. Dissent had caught up with disenfranchisement. There was a mutual distrust between President Nixon and the media, which only helped fuel the fire of discontent in the establishment circles. And suddenly, investigative journalists were elevated to hero status. The achievements of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein were immortalized in print and in cinema with the release of All the President's Men. Times were hard in the 1970s, and that made anti-establishment journalism pretty hip. This turned out to be kind of a fleeting trend, though. As we know from our Reagan episode and our Fuck Milton episode, the 80s is when change that was brewing for decades really took root in favor of the neoliberal set. This is a point that I often make when hearing people critique the media. I honestly believe there was really only one golden age, and this period was the 70s. That's it. Before then, it was controlled by billionaires or the equivalent for the times that had an agenda. And since then, it's still controlled by billionaires. And due to the deregulatory frenzy beginning in 1996, multinational corporations. Today, mainstream media have become caricatures of themselves, slaves to corporate masters. 
Independence is virtually dead in the world of broadcast. But insofar as conglomerates rule the airwaves, it's billionaires who control the news. Billionaires like this fucking asshole. The markets wanted you out. Newspapers unprofitable. Why do you want to be in that business? Oh, I think they can be a great force for good, uh, still, and uh, do a lot of things. And I think, you know, they've just got to change their business model. This Aussie cockknocker started the official race to the bottom in the modern era, and since gaining a foothold in the U.S., he's continued to lead the race, with most outlets hot on his heels. There are plenty of accounts of Murdoch's rise, including the closest thing to an authorized biography, The Man Who Owns the News by Michael Wolff the same lovable hack who planted himself on a couch outside the Oval Office and produced a couple of books about Trump. Again, I'm going to defer to Taibbi, who wrote this about Wolf's approach to journalism. Wolf puts halos on the people who talk to him and savages the ones who don't. And this is all pretty transparent in the same way that fast food restaurants have stopped bothering to make cheese look real. Who cares? You'll eat it anyway. I'm not sure I can accurately express how much I love Matt Taibbi. Anyway. The Man Who Owns the News is a pretty breezy book, and Wolf was somehow granted access to Murdoch, which, if you ever read the book, is kind of surprising. It's not really the most glamorous picture, especially in terms of Murdoch's intellect. He paints him as cunning and ruthless, but with little need for advice or partners, absolutely no ideology save for what makes him money, more on that in a moment, and a grumbling introvert who can't complete a thought. The only thing he lives for, it seems, and has been told in several accounts of him over the years, is gossip. Schadenfreude is this guy's main pastime. His motive in life is actually pure speculation. But there's certainly an element of being an outsider yearning for respect and authority that he comes by quite honestly. As Aussies, the Murdoch family are and will forever be royal adjacent. No matter how hard an Anglophile American, a Canadian, or an Aussie tries to cultivate aristocratic heirs, will forever be second-class citizens in the eyes of the Brits. And that's just how it is. So by birth, Murdoch would be on the outside looking in, despite being born into a rather upper-class family. This kangaroo wallaby fucker was born to Dame Elizabeth and Keith Murdoch in 1931. And before you go celebrating the fact that he's now 90 years old and might hopefully be worm food soon, his mother Elizabeth lived to be 103. Figures. So Keith Murdoch kicks off the whole thing and begins to build the Murdoch fortune, largely on his notoriety as the war correspondent that smuggled out a story that embarrassed the British during the First World War. It's also not exactly clear whether that story had any veracity to it. But, you know, that's a Murdoch thing, I guess. It was under the tutelage of a former Pulitzer executive named Lord Northcliffe, where Keith Murdoch learned the secret news formula that would imprint on his DNA. Contests, quick stories, beautiful girls, and if it bleeds, it leads. Rupert's father would go on to establish the first newspaper chain in Australia and add broadcast properties along the way, sending him and Dame Murdoch into the upper echelon of Australian society. Now in the pecking order of Australian media moguls, the Murdochs were a close third to the Fairfax and Packer families. As Wolf tells it, the Fairfaxes are the establishment family, the Packers are the Araviste family, vulgar and bumptious, and the Murdochs, the most disciplined and deadly. This was the family business that Rupert would join and over time build into the massive empire that we know today. Dig this, this dingo sucker was sent off to a fancy boarding school to prepare him for a life of upper crustiness, but his father Keith was concerned because one of Rupert's prized possessions in school was a bust of Lenin. Can you imagine? Who knew he was such a Beatles fan? Crazy, right? 
You're fucking kidding, right? Of course. Now, given what we know of Old Rupee, it was probably some sort of fashion statement or attempt to fit in, or maybe just a gesture of irony. Nevertheless, one of Keith Murdoch's concerns was that his son would turn out to be a communist sympathizer. Well, well, well. How the turntables... I'm sure he'd be proud that his son actually turned out to be a neo-fascist oligarch instead. The interesting thing about Murdoch's rise to billionaire is how decidedly uninteresting it was. Seriously. The key thing to understand about him is that he started on third base, but no one knew it. This was part asset and part liability for him. The asset is that very few people saw him coming. Maybe that's because Australia is at the bottom of the globe. That's about all I know of it. I've never been there. I wish I had. I heard New Zealand's pretty terrific. Australia's kind of weird, but we have a lot of listeners in Australia, so... Hey guys, why don't you send, send us some messages and tell us what Australia's all about? And tell me how shitty my accent is, because I'm sure it's fucking awful. <laughs> Anywho, the liability is that few people would take him seriously for quite a while. In the UK and America, no one really gave a shit about an Australian newspaper man. Again, probably one of the things that lit this fucking guy's candle. I mean, his entrance into the US market couldn't be less impressive. He purchased a local paper in San Antonio, Texas in 1973, essentially because it was for sale and it was cheap. But it was a toehold. There's a whole other story to be written about his experience in the UK because his tabloids really wreaked havoc over there, and many credit his bullshit for stripping away the sheen of the royal family. No one treated them with such torrid disdain prior to Murdoch. He literally invented the British tabloid, and it's not all that difficult to draw a straight line from his entrance into the UK to Brexit. Brexit was essentially the culmination of his life's work in Britain. Here in the US, Murdoch would plant his seed in San Antonio and in three different women. I'm sorry, that was tawdry, but it's true. His first wife, the throwaway wife with whom he had one daughter, was Patricia Booker. She's dead now. Then there was Anna. She lasted a long time and pumped out the three most notable heirs, Elizabeth, Lachlan, and James. And now there's Wendy, who just loves to spend money and gave him two daughters as well. This Charlie Chaplin motherfucker has three baby mamas and still can't decide whether to include any of his kids in the business. Long story short, he's a piece of shit. There I said it. What it reveals about his motives, in my opinion, is that Murdoch is a pure opportunist, devoid of ideology, but enthralled with acquiring elite status, less by earning it and more by eliminating the elite. He's a ruthless and tireless autocrat who moves listlessly through the waters like a shark dispassionately devouring his prey. If you want to check it out, Wolf's book is more fun than informative, but it does give a ton of colorful insight into Murdoch's decades-long obsession with purchasing the Wall Street Journal. Of course, he eventually did, and now it's a centerpiece in his empire. According to the News Corp annual report, the Dow Jones unit that includes the journal produced $1.5 billion in revenue for 2020 on its own. It's a pretty staggering sum, and it's incredibly profitable as well as it pumped out $240 million in EBITDA for 2020. All told, the company, which includes subscription news holdings, streaming services, papers in the UK and Australia, The Journal, Barron's, Market Watch, and HarperCollins Book Publishing, had revenue slightly north of $9 billion in 2020, with about a billion in profit. Now, if that doesn't actually sound all that grand compared to other ginormous companies, recall that he sold most of his assets to Disney for $71 billion just a few years ago. Essentially, he's holding on to these assets because they're his first love, his way of influencing public opinion to his way of thinking and meddling in the affairs of the world. Here's the Aussie prick in his own voice again. You don't have any fucking friends except me. And you treat me like shit. 
you treat me like shit, and you fucking use me. Ooh, sorry, wrong Aussie scumbag. Here you go. If the sea level rises six inches, that's a big deal in the world. The Maldives might disappear or something. But, okay, we've got to learn to... We can't mitigate that. We can't stop it. We've just got to stop building vast houses on seashores. Holy fuck. Problem solved. Six-inch sea level rise, no problem. Just stop building houses on the beach. Ta-da! You fucking prick. The reason I'm highlighting the rise of Murdoch so extensively is because he is the cautionary tale of Telecom 96 and the rush to deregulate the media business. Now, before we wind this down, I wanted to share another clip about Murdoch from legendary British comedy duo Fry and Laurie. The setup is Laurie plays Rupert Murdoch in It's a Wonderful Life, and Fry is guardian angel Clarence. After saving Murdoch's life, Clarence shows him how wonderful England is in a world where Murdoch never existed. Well, it's brilliant. Totally bloody brilliant. Big red buses, free hospitals, an amusing royal family, proper taxes, decent newspapers, best television in the world, people actually getting on with each other. You like it? You really like it? It's fantastic. It's paradise. Oh, help me, Clarence. I want to live again. Well, this is marvelous news, Rupert. Just think of the money I can make in a world like this. I can introduce big tits, break up the broadcasting monopolies, destroy the Times, BBC, the royal family. I can make an absolute bloody fortune. All you need to know about News Corp is hidden in plain sight. The arrogantly benign corporate name says it all. It's a business. The business of news. A corporation. Intended to delight or enrage to pique your interest and boil your blood. Release those consumer endorphins or fall into lockstep with an enticing narrative that blames someone else for the problems of the world or your own miserable fucking life. It teaches nothing. It only shouts. Its success relies on you repressing that part of your brain that questions the ridiculous. That part that asks any questions at all. What the fuck is that called again? Oh yeah, thinking. You sit back, we'll tell you what to think. Brought to you by Insert Sponsor here. It's really what they meant when they said, we report, you decide. But it's not just a Murdoch problem. As we said, he's the worst example of it, the sludge in the bottom of the barrel. What's scary is that there are outlets like Blaze, Breitbart, and Newsmax that are trying to out-Murdoch Murdoch. They don't have the head start, the backing, or the moxie to be as ubiquitous as Rupert, but they're coming on strong. Then there's the pathetic attempts personified by MSNBC to match witlessness with Fox, but from the other side. MSNBC trying to manufacture outrage in the same way conservative outlets do is like watching conservatives try their hand at comedy. So do check out Hate Inc. if you get a chance. One of the things I admire most about Matt Taibbi, and there are a great number of them, is his propensity to look inward and criticize his own work as part of the greater media landscape. About a third of the way through the book, it dawned on me that he included himself in every reference to the media. He used the royal we throughout the entire book, never once intimating that his journey was anything superior to the rest of the journalist lot. In several instances, he cringed at his past characterizations of news stories and subjects. Taibbi is constantly learning, remarkably self-effacing, and searingly authentic. 
It's why I amused on a prior episode that chroniclers such as Taibi and Glenn Greenwald inevitably wound up creating their own mediascape because their ability to exist within any framework that doesn't allow for the most extreme self-examination has evaporated over time. What makes this such an interesting time to review the efficacy of media today is that writers like them can actually exist in this new alternative media universe in financial terms. They, like me, and I'm not equating myself to them in any way, shape, or form, have discovered that there is an appetite for quality, truth, and self-examination. It might be on the margins, but it exists. The finances of a show like Unfucking the Republic, or the burgeoning mini-empires of the likes of Taibi, Abby Martin, or Glenn Greenwald, or Ben Shapiro on the right, should be impossible. But there's a willingness to pay for critical thought. The fact that someone as smart but intellectually dishonest as Shapiro cannot simply exist but thrive in this new reality is also scary. It's what has people freaking the fuck out about Substack. Because for every David Sirota seeking to do the right thing, and please, if you're not supporting the Daily Poster, consider doing so. There will be a hundred podcaster, blogger, YouTubers, etc. attempting to create a cult of disinformation built on hate, dissent, and outing otherness. In terms of this episode, I want to introduce two new themes to the show as I mentioned up top. One is what I'm calling the Tyson Principle, and the other is Peter Tuiu. The former is named for my very first listener email, whose last name is Tyson. For posterity, I'm going to read the introduction of his email back when we had almost no listeners. Like, seriously. In full disclosure, we have a great email relationship now and have become fast internet friends, so all's well in unfucking land. Anyway, here's what he said. Dude, I've listened to, read three of your unfucking episodes, and I'm still waiting for anything resembling a prescription or even a suggestion of how to unfuck this fucked up republic. If all you're going to do is give us history lessons with lots of fucks in them, then all you're doing is unpacking the story of how we got here. So I actually really took this to heart, which is why I've tried to be clear about the intent of each episode. Sometimes there's a real actionable point. Sometimes we're just setting a story straight and indeed just unpacking rather than unfucking. Where Mr. Tyson and I landed was a mutual understanding that sometimes there are no immediate solutions to a problem exactly because it's so misunderstood, and the story of how we arrived at this juncture has been lost to the noise. So sometimes I will absolutely just be unpacking and explaining to help contextualize certain policies, because it's very difficult to untie a knot if you don't know how it was tied in the first place. And other times, we will offer specific remedies. Now, the second concept is something that we've referred to enough that I need to name it, and that's Peter Tuiu, short for pissing in the ocean to warm it up. So let's do this one before I offer the Tyson principle for this episode. The Peter Tuiu moment here is what we're doing. It's Taibi's blog, Abby Martin's podcast, Unfucking the Republic, The Daily Poster. To a larger degree, it's The Intercept or Democracy Now. On the whole, we're all Peter Tuiu. Because the fuckery from the corporate class of media is so overwhelming that the truth being slinged by these smaller outlets is simply too small to make a difference. That's where I feel we are today. The truth is out there, and great journalism is happening, and perhaps more than ever before. The problem is, it's difficult to find, and oftentimes really uncomfortable to read. I remember years ago, I was on a team that was so locked into a set of civil liberties stories that we obsessed over them to the exclusion of almost everything else. It was really unhealthy, and there's no question it left me depressed and struggling to identify with people in everyday life. Sometimes, it's okay to tune in and dip out. Watch a ball game, follow the Kardashians, get lost on TikTok, watch reruns of Miami Vice. 
There's something seriously wrong with you. Stop it. You know you love it. I do, but it's weird to bring it up as much as you do. I'm just looking out for you, bro. Point being, we have to start being deliberate in our consumption of media and recognize the place it's coming from. If Fox News or MSNBC is your source of news and not entertainment, you're doing it wrong. Now, in terms of the Tyson principle for this episode, it's one part context or unpacking, as he says, and one part lesson. Here's the context. We think media is fucked up today more than it ever has been because we have this fantasy in our minds of a time when media was great. Journalists like Woodward and Bernstein were badass heroes, and integrity ruled. In reality, this period did exist, but it was just so fucking brief. Zoom out, you have the New York Times burying stories of the Holocaust, Pulitzer and Hearst literally bringing us into war, or the Founding Fathers, many of whom were publishers themselves, hurling scurrilous lies and insults at each other. The news has always been a bit fucked and it takes an informed person to sift through the bullshit and find the truth. So don't despair. The lesson part of our Tyson principle today is to continue building an understanding of the neoliberal theories created by the Chicago School, memorialized by think tanks like Mercatus or the Heritage Foundation, and codified into legislation authored by corporations. This all happened as a result of deregulation the core theory of Ronald Coase of the Chicago School, who helped argue that markets are moral and regulation is evil. So here's your takeaway. Tune your ears to any talk of deregulation, because the next battle is ahead of us when Congress takes a stab at putting the social media and search giant genies back into their respective bottles. FMF is raised to the rafters. I give you FRM. And be wary of the politician selling deregulation. Here endeth the lesson. What up to Natalie and her really cool dad, Nettie and all of Atagami, Wisco, and the core unfuckers, Lala P. Slippery, Jay Boogers, C. Tyson, Starlatty, Matt A., Lara E., and Derek B. Thank the good lord above that there are too many unfuckers who purchase coffee and or t-shirts from our new store at UNFTR to mention by name. Holy shit, you guys are really making this happen. So the first round of coffee just shipped, so hopefully you're unboxing it as you listen to this episode. That would be kind of neat. Make sure to tell us what you think. As for t-shirts, we're about two weeks away from shipping those, so please be patient. We actually purchased really high-quality shit, so it takes a bit longer than those bullshit screening jobs, apparently. But we'll be stocked pretty soon. Thank you again to everybody who ordered coffee from us to help the native roasters uh, out of Puspatuck and to support this show. Holy fucking shit. Now, it didn't stop a lot of you from just sending us straight donations, so I'm going to run through this pretty quickly if I can, and thank you all up top for, for doing this. Gudolf rhymes with Rudolph, if that's how you say Rudolph, but what if I said Rudolph? Then I'd call you Gudolf, but it's Gudolf. Gudolf bought 20 coffees. Said Friedman's takedown was unfucking unbelievable and worth the hype. Here's more coffee. Gudolf, Jesus, that is like a lot of fucking dough. Thank you so much for doing that. And, oh, Tricution, who I pronounced correctly, by the way, still wants to buy our coffee from Canada. Ah, oh, Trick, I'm going to talk to you a little later in the episode, but thank you again for buying some coffees. Linda C. Cheese bought 20 coffees and said, Max, listen to Chicago School three times in a row to absorb it all. Holy shit. She gives us some great suggestions, by the way, uh, including Puerto Rico. Uh, and that is on tap for a different episode that we have. 
either isolated on its own Linda or part of uh, a broader storyline that that we're building towards. Now, Amy bought five coffees and said, ever your humble student. No, Amy, I am ever your humble teacher. I'm not even really a teacher. I'm just some fucking jerk with a microphone. But you bought five coffees and I fucking appreciate it. Obese Andy bought us a coffee and said, love the show. Listening from down under. Ooh, boy. Obese Andy, let me know what you thought about my really shitty Australian accent in this episode. Very curious to hear what you say. Daniel S. bought us 20 coffees. Love our take on things. Keep up the great work. 20 coffees is a lot. That is a lot of dough. You really are honoring the show by doing that. Thank you all so much for that. Now on Facebook, Kayleen R., Rodney K., John H., and Debbie L. all checked in. And on Twitter, Lefty Boogers and O Libby Animus all checked in as well. I want to highlight Lefty Boogers who said, has the invisible hand of the free market touched you in a bad place? I love that. And, oh yes, Kayleen R.'s Facebook comment. I just love this so much. She said, I ordered afternoon, that's unfucking your afternoon coffee, because I'm pretty sure that morning will make me shit my pants. Love the podcast. I love your comment as much as you love the podcast. Now, on Instagram, we've got JJ Ronald 7 said, great episode. Hey, thank you so much. Also suggested that we do something to mention JFK's economic advisor, John Galbraith. Wow. Um... So he was one of the ones that was left on the cutting room floor. Such an important part of the last hundred years of not so much great, but influential economist. Uh, Thank you for calling that out. I wish I could have worked him more into the episode. He was actually the reference to the ivory tower economists in the Kennedy administration, but his influence was really more substantial than that. So thank you for calling that out. All right, so Scott wrote us a really thoughtful email outlining concepts that we can cover regarding welfare. One point in particular he asked us to unfuck is the right narrative that we have spent literally trillions of dollars into welfare programs since the 1960s, and yet poverty persists. Wow, Scott C., there's a lot there. So I want to thank you and say that we're on it. Now, for some backdrop, if you haven't checked out one of our early episodes called Priorities, War, Wealth, and Welfare, kind of check that out as a primer. If you have, awesome. We do have a lot more work to do in terms of uh, welfare. 98 Python wrote about our culture cancel episode, asking about legitimate charities to support. 98 Python, I am so sorry I haven't responded to you directly. I put out feelers to three different places that will have a much better answer to this than I will, and then I will respond to you directly. I'm glad that you were moved by that episode, and thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'm a man, Robert M., a teacher in Dublin, sent a great email about a host of things. One is the suggestion that we cover voter suppression in the U.S., which is definitely on the radar. And also, Robert, good guess, brother. We are indeed the same age. I knew my references would ultimately date me. Lara E., how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I am so fucking relieved that you dug the FMF show. So thank you for telling us that. And I, too, am curious where the fuck we'll be with this show in a year from now. God willing, I'm still doing it, and we're still chilling together. Elena S. from Mexico, the land of Obrador, sent a compliment to us and an insanely well-crafted essay about U.S. aggression in Mexico. Elena, as we expand into the hemisphere, we have a NAFTA show planned, actually, and more on the Washington consensus. So we'll touch base with you again to perhaps collaborate on something that you sent in. So thank you for this. Jesus H. Christ, you unfuckers are truly a different breed of smart. Michael P. This is a cool one because Michael P. sent a suggestion for our next quickie and well, it's perfect. Michael, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. I'll save the attribution for the quickie, my man. Jakushin, my Canuck bud from America's Attic. What up? 
Let me know what you thought about the FMF show, and thank you for the Trudeau hint that you dropped. We're following up on that as we speak. Dan V. wants to talk about the broken Senate and Electoral College. I'm wondering if we can hit that in the same episode. Anyway, we've been getting calls to do more on the filibuster, and I think there's a show in here somewhere about arcane shit in our democracy that's biting us in the ass. And by the way, don't hate me for this, but I'm not sure that the Electoral College is one of them. Ah, hmm. Obviously, I need to defend myself here, but it really is a fun argument, so thank you for sending that in. Joshua T. sent us a really nice email about the FMF episode. That's great, but dig this on fuckers. My man Joshua lives in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, so I'm thinking some reconnaissance missions might be in order. We've got an unfucker on the inside. F-Joy is digging our shit and wants to know where the fuck our Patreon is. Hey, F-Joy, thank you for considering support of the show. We have no Patreon, but a few ways to support if you're so inclined if you go to unftr.com. Cooper W. would like some whole bean espresso. Hmm. I know this is possible, Coop, but this might uh, take us a while to recoup, no pun intended, some costs on the first round of orders. Uh, but we'll keep this in mind as the coffee store hopefully grows over time. And Steve D. So I had a thing with Steve D. And we worked it out because I was fucking wrong. We had the, ni- we had the nicest disagreement maybe ever. See, he loved the FMF episode, but was a little peeved at my reference to God. And he was right. See, I have a propensity to shit all over religious books and organized religion in general, but I'm usually not insensitive and careless enough to just shit on God. So, my bad, Steve. Great catch, and I will do better. As far as reviews, guy with not diploma said, great! Doe-Idiva, Doe-Idiva, said, love it! Amazing, the energy and the unbiased insight. And then... According, this is a Japanese thing, but according to Google Translate, it means Octopus Park in English. <laughs> is that right? I put the characters in. Okay. Well, that's what we have. Said, effing best. You have an interest in understanding why things are what they are, then this podcast is for you. Fuck Milton Friedman. Uh, Big Red Firecracker from New Zealand. Australia adjacent. And the, I don't know. I, so... If we have listeners from New Zealand and listeners from Australia, uh, I'd love to hear why you think your nation is better than the other nation. Because I know it's a great frustration to both New Zealanders and Australians when people uh, assume it's the same nation. So tell me what's shitty about the other one. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, uh, Big Red Firecracker from New Zealand said, uh, every American should listen to this and learn the hard truths about their country. And then I'm not sure about this. This is pure speculation. I think Big Red Firecracker just dropped uh, their phone after that and did the haka. Gizark said, amazing podcast. This podcast dives into issues with enough humor while leaving you with the knowledge to understand the issues. F-T-R. What is F-T-R? Another hashtag? You didn't look it up? Fuck the right? Maybe. Think fuck the right? Okay. Uh, And lastly... You may hear me talking to somebody uh, just off mic. That somebody is our producer. It's the person that really helps coordinate pretty much everything. uh, And uh, the person without whom I don't know if I could breathe. So here's the issue. Due to the anonymity of this show, except for Manny Faces, who's like a real person in the world, which is funny because Manny Faces is not a real person. He's actually the person behind the person who is the real person in the world. That doesn't matter. That's a story for another day. So besides that, it's just us. And so my producer, I can't say her name, uh, needs a name. Now, we've kicked some things around, but I'd actually like to leave it out to, uh, to the audience. So if you are so inclined to send us a message as to what you believe 
the name of our producer should be when we refer to her on the podcast because she's too important to leave out here. Let us know. Book love and pod love. First up, we've got book love. We've got The Man Who Owns the News, Inside the Secret World of Rupert Murdoch. That's the one by Michael Wolf. It's really totally not necessary to get it. Uh, Wolf's not the greatest writer in the world, but it did have some interesting nuggets if you are into our hashtag and want to continue to fuck Rupert Murdoch. Then we've got Backstory, Inside the Business of News by Ken Aletta. And of course, Hate Inc. by Matt Taibbi. In terms of pod love, just one that I'm going to point your interest to this week, and it is the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. The most recent episode, at least of this recording, is Be a Smart News Consumer. But if you uh, aren't subscribed yet to uh, Nader's podcast, there's a couple different co-hosts on there. Nader kind of weighs in from afar, wherever he is. His interviews are still really kind of amazing and uh, timeless. So uh, check that out and subscribe. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Uh, For your producer name, I vote Fanny Maces. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by the Ghosts of Bloomsbury and distributed by Honeybees. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail. Connect with us on social. Read our essays at unftr.substack.com and visit unftr.com to learn more about the show and how to support us. 